This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Ian Drake of Montclair State University, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm joined today by Joseph C. Sternberg. He is a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, where he writes the political economics column. He joined the journal in 2006 as an editorial writer based in Hong Kong, where he also edited the Business Asia column. He was born in 1982, and that's important because he is a millennial. We're going to talk about why that's important in a few minutes. And he lives in London, England. He's joining us today to talk about his book entitled The Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. Joe, welcome to the New Books Network. Well, thanks for having me on. So this is a book that uh, deals with the millennials, as many books uh, these days do, but you are addressing some particular problems that this generation of Americans in particular, although you do talk about um, the public policies of some other countries around the world, you're primarily concerned with American millennials. So why are millennials an important generation? Well, I think uh, you know, to answer that, I took a step back and uh, you know, we can th- first think about the question I was trying to answer with the book, which is uh, who is right in so many of these millennial versus baby boomer feuds that we seem to see erupting right now? I mean, you're absolutely right that these generational issues have become a real preoccupation, I think, because uh, these two generations I'm talking about in the book, the baby boomers and the millennials, are just so large and are jostling around with each other in American politics right now. And I realize that there's a lot of misunderstanding on both sides about what's actually going on economically, particularly for this younger generation of millennials. Um, And so I thought that it was really worth digging into and important to dig into the uh, economic questions here, uh, you know, more than some of these cultural things that we often hear about snowflakey millennials or, or any of that stuff, and try to understand what has happened to millennials over the past decade, uh, because, you know, the millennials were a generation that uh, just by accident turned out to be especially exposed to the effects of the Great Recession that hit between 2007 and 2009. Um, the accident of our birth, uh, people born between around 1981 and 1996, uh, meant that we were the young workers in the economy uh, during the Great Recession and the really long period of relatively slow economic growth that came after it. And so I was trying to understand what exactly does that mean for millennials economically and how different is that from what the boomers experienced in their own lifespan? 
So before we start talking about the millennials' experience and their plight, I want to talk about this concept that you address early on, uh, this distinction that you address early on in the book about a generation and what distinguishes one generation from another beyond just birth year versus the concept of uh, so-called birth cohorts. Can you dis- uh, d- distinguish these two ideas? Uh, yeah, this is actually something that's really important because in a funny way for a, a guy like me who has just written a book about intergenerational economics, um, I think that the concept of a generation is often overplayed. Uh, you know, the way that we talk about the baby boomers or the way that we talk about millennials, it becomes freighted with all of these cultural connotations. You know, people associate the boomers with the, you know, growing up with Leave It to Beaver or having particular music tastes or having gone to Woodstock. Uh, you know, people think about the millennials as, uh, again, as a, you know, the stereotype of a very snowflakey, emotionally needy generation. And I actually think that a lot of that cultural stuff is uh, way overplayed. Um, I think that there's a real tendency to exaggerate uh, the uniformity of some of these groups in those senses. But I do think that this concept of just a birth cohort of having a large number of people who were born uh, in a particular era and have gone through some of the same uh, you know, major political or economic milestones together does actually matter. And it especially matters to this discussion because it turns out uh, you know, more by accident than by any kind of fate, that we had two uh, very large cohorts in the American population at one time uh, in the period after the Great Recession, uh, the baby boomers and their millennial children, uh, who, because they were all about the same age, were affected by these economic phenomena in ways that were very similar to each other. There actually is a lot of evidence that your birth, your your age at a particular point in an economic cycle can have a lot of effect on your output and or the outcomes that you experience. And so I think that it was worthwhile thinking about generations or cohorts from that perspective, uh, from trying to understand if you were part of this very large group of young adults who were just entering the workforce after the recession, what impact did that have on you? And what is the significance of the fact that you're still living with that impact? And so although you think that some of the uh, pop cultural, if you will, um, uh, associations we have with one generation versus another are overplayed, at the same time, it seems like you do agree that these um, pan-American if, if, or these national experiences that affect different generations because they're at different points in their lives or in the uh, they're experiencing uh, entry into the job market or higher education, um, while other people are experiencing retirement, uh, that those generational experiences can actually affect outlook and attitude, though. In other words, the economic experience can affect one's cultural slash social outlook, right? Uh, right. I mean, I think that this is actually most obvious in terms of economics and politics, and it becomes a little cloudier the further away from those two areas you get, um, because, you know, those are the areas where people are actually expected to come together either in a marketplace or on election day and try to make decisions um, as a population. And so, I mean, one of the arguments I do make in the book is that even though uh, culturally the boomers represented a a wide range of uh, musical tastes or attitudes toward 
politics. I mean, because of the particular set of uh, economic experiences that they had gone through, they did end up uh, traveling in a, a certain reasonably well-defined lane politically, um, you know, whether they were Republicans or Democrats. There were some really important areas of uh, con- political consensus that had grown out of that economic experience. And you're starting to see some elements of that among the millennials too. But again, the key point is that it has more to do with external things that have happened to a cohort, such as the experience of the millennials having graduated into the labor market in an economic downturn, uh, than it has to do with any particular internal characteristics about that generation. I mean, the I think what's really problematic is the kind of uh, you know, theory that you saw in that uh, Strauss and Howe book, Generations, the Histories of, of America's Future, back in the early 90s, that argued that there are certain traits that repeat in certain cycles among generations. I think you can't really make that argument, but you can talk a lot about common economic experiences and how that's likely to shape certain you know, political outlooks. So in further identifying some of these generational um, uh, dividing lines, Let's talk about uh, just some basics. Uh, the baby boomers, this is a group that's, uh, as you note in the book, it's roughly 76 million people. They're born uh, starting roughly in 1945 uh, to 1964 as the uh, birth range for this group. And there's another generation sandwiched in between uh, the baby boomers and the millennials, which is Generation X. I'm proudly a member of that. I was born in 1970. And that generation is roughly from the mid to late 60s through 1980, and that's about 55 million. So it's um, roughly 20 million less than the baby boomers. But then it ticks up again uh, to 62 million in the cohort of the millennials, which is roughly from 1981 to 1996 or 97. Um, We've had a generation since then, of course, which is, I guess, most commonly referred to as Generation Z, correct? Uh, yes, that's right. And um, these are people born in 97 through, when does Generation Z end? Is that 2010 or 2015? Uh, I think it, it, you know, by some counts, it might still be ongoing. I mean, one of the things that I found uh, interesting when I got to this part of the book, I discovered if you want to sit down to write a book about baby boomers and millennials, you first have to define what those things are. And one of the things that's unusual about the baby boom generation, and in fact, I think the reason that a lot of Americans have started thinking in terms of generations is that with the baby boom, we actually had an identifiable large cohort that emerged at one time. Um, you know, the baby boom was a product of an unusual uptick in uh, fertility. Each uh, of the baby boomers' mothers was having more children than had been common for the generation before. Um, you know, demographers, it turns out, aren't exactly sure why that happened. There's still some debate about that. And then, of course, when those uh, baby boomer uh, women themselves reached childbearing age, because there were so many of them, uh, they also helped to produce a very large cohort of millennials. Um, but, it, it, you know, it is uh, kind of a, a tricky thing. We have a clear well-established dividing line for what constitutes a baby boomers, but baby boomer, one of the things I discovered working on the book is that uh, there isn't actually a commonly accepted definition for a millennial. So there are a lot of footnotes in the book that are just explaining for each study or survey I was looking at how that researcher happened to define it. And so this is not a uh, simply a gripe 
of one generation blaming the prior generation. You, you actually start with praise for the baby boomers. So what is it they've, as a uh, group, done right in your estimation? Uh, and then we'll start talking about all the things that you think they've done wrong. Well, this really gets to the heart of this talking past each other phenomenon that I noticed. When you get a baby boomer and a millennial in a room together talking about the economy, it's like they're almost talking about two completely different countries. Uh, because uh, you know, millennials will have a lot of hard luck stories that uh, we'll be talking about in a few minutes. But the baby boomers will look at this and they will say, well, look, you kids have Google to help you with your homework. You have uh, Tinder to help you find a mate. You have Uber so that you can hail a cab without even having to step out into the rain. Uh, you have LinkedIn to manage your career. You have all of these creature comforts. You're living in these fabulous cities that are safer than uh, you know, cities have been in a generation, uh, enjoying all of these creature comforts. Uh, America has never been so prosperous in terms of uh, total level of GDP as it is now. Yeah, the boomers will look at millennials and say, what are you kids complaining about? And it is absolutely true that one of the legacies of the boomers is that um, level of prosperity, that level of material comfort uh, in American life today. I think that the boomers created a world where their millennial children uh, are the first generation in, I, I think, at least three uh, that has not grown up under the threat of mass conscription into the military because, um, you know, we have become better at fighting wars so that we don't imperil as many of our young people. Uh, we've grown up out from under the shadow of so many of the childhood diseases that the boomers' parents were so afraid of, uh, you know, even if measles is starting to make a comeback. Um, and, I, you know, it is important to recognize, uh, you know, how boomers can feel that these things are achievements uh, for American society because they are. Um, I mean, the only point that I want to make is that even though uh, boomers have created a world where millennials have a very comfortable today, uh, I think that the boomer political legacy is an economy where the tomorrow feels so much less secure for millennials. You know, this is a, a notion that you don't you don't go uh, deeply into the history at all uh, pre-boomer, but uh, the so-called silent generation before the boomers um, could arguably say that they had created much of a world, you know, post-World War II that made the boomers' attitude, uh, you know, in other words, uh, the same that the boomers that you've just described uh, attribute to the so-called spoiled millennials might have been said of the silent generation in regard to the boomers, right? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, you know, definitely someone could have made that argument uh, you know, 30 years ago at the point in the boomer life cycle that uh, you know, I'm writing about millennials now at this point in our life cycle. Uh, I, I mean, certainly I think that the economy has changed in important ways over that generation, partly because of uh, how the you know, boomers voted in the decisions that they made as they uh, got into maturity. But uh, you know, I am aware that there is a certain cyclicality to this where the old people and the young people never quite understand each other. But I do also think that it is important to understand that the experiences of millennials uh, over the past 10 years have been actually very unusual, um, you know, in the perspective of much of the, the 20th century. You have to go back to the Great Depression uh, to have a generation that experienced an economy quite as bad as uh, what millennials have been through. So that does have implications that yeah, I argue throughout the book boomers need to be aware of. They can't just brush some of these complaints off as the sort of discussion that the young and the old always have with each other. Right. Well, I'll certainly agree with you there that cyclical doesn't uh, allow for uh, informed understanding of particular points in time. So let's talk about some of the effects of 
boomer rule, as it were. What um, what do you see? You, you go through these in different chapters where you talk about different segments of economic life for millennials and um, the what really seem to me to be public policies that are affecting. In other words, this is not just merely uh, victims of mass changes in an economy that no one can control, but rather incentives that are created through public policies, uh, largely implemented by the boomers. Uh, so is that summary uh, accurate? Uh, yeah, I think that, that I, I actually really like the way that you're framing that there, because, uh, you know, this is the challenge that I think when you you face whenever you sit down to write a book about public policy, because certainly the uh, American economy is always evolving and it you know, changes and evolves very quickly, which I think is one of America's great strengths uh, in an international perspective. Uh, but that does mean that you then need to try to sit down and separate how much of what's happening in the economy is a choice that policymakers have made versus how much of it is a um, result of this natural evolution. And one of the arguments I, I make that I think is really important to try to get across here is that, um, you know, the boomers also suffered their own economic challenges. You know, we think about them growing up in the peace and security of the 50s and 60s when there was a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage, but they actually entered the workforce during the stagflation of the late 70s. Uh, So it's not a matter that the boomers had an easy time. Part of that, uh, part of their own problems were a result of natural evolution of the economy as we face greater uh, global competitive pressures and, and the like. Uh, but part of it was policy choices that their parents had made that didn't work out. Um, and what I'm really trying to do with the millennial generation is, again, to sit down and understand or, or try to understand how much of the way that the American economy has developed over the past generation, really, and the way uh, it has affected young people is a result of the kind of natural evolutionary trend that people have to adapt to in the economy versus how much of it actually was uh, policy choices. And I think that that's a question that millennials are really going to have to think about politically uh, as we start being in a position to make our own policy choices. So before we discuss the Great Recession and all of the particular effects of the last decade, which is part of the formation of your title, uh, let's talk about these larger, um, or I should say, longer-term uh, issues that have been percolating since the 70s and 80s. You talk about, for example, um, investments, and um, in both labor market uh, or labor economics as well as housing. And so, can you expand a, a little bit on those topics? Yeah, well, so the long-term trend that I find very concerning uh, and that I think has been particularly consequential for millennials over the past decade is that the way the American economy uh, invests uh, in you know, creating new economic growth uh, and sort of the, the consequences of that have really changed dramatically over the past 40 or 50 years. Uh, so if you start the story back in the 50s and 60s when the boomers were growing up, I mean, we look back very fondly on that uh, as a high point in the American economy, at least for, for some people. I mean, certainly for, for others, including minority groups, it was much less so uh, you know, than people tend to, to think uh, now. You know, that was an era of great job security. The boomers grew up watching their parents uh, benefit from an economy where one 
earner in the household was able to support a family and was able to support that family uh, relatively comfortably. Uh, boomers look back on growing up in an economy when unionization was very strong. Unions were effective advocates for workers. Uh, you know, when productivity seemed to increase very rapidly and that underlay rapid wage growth. And somehow that uh, mechanism has broken down, uh, really starting in the 70s. I think that if you look at the graphs, you can see a dramatic decline in uh, the rate of in, you know, business investment. We're not talking financial investments like stocks here. We're talking about uh, you know, the factory down the street. Uh, the managers invest in buying new machinery for the production line so that it will be more productive. Um, you know, that kind of investment as a percentage of GDP has just been on a steady downward trend line for 30 or 40 years. And that has a lot of implications for the job market uh, because it means that uh, workers are increasing their productivity at a slower rate, rate which means that uh, wage growth is going to slow or stagnate. Uh, job security is going to be less because certainly if companies aren't investing, uh, it's harder for them to stay globally competitive. Um, and, you know, this just filters through to so many other areas of the, the economy. And I think that really the, the part of the generational story I'm telling here is that boomers understood that this was a problem as they were living through uh, earlier versions of the downsizing revolution in the 70s or 80s, as they were dealing with the new winds of global trade and competition that were starting to buffet the American economy. I just think that they got so many of the policy answers wrong uh, in ways that then once we got to the Great Recession, had a really serious negative impact on uh, the rising generation of youth, the millennials. So as I was reading about these different areas, including the investments in, uh, that you just been discussing, I was thinking about how much of this is best framed in the context of millennials versus boomers or generational differences, because it seems to me that these policies that create the incentives for good or ill are ultimately derived from political outlooks. So um, the liberalism that had been ascendant, the government activism that had been ascendant through the 60s and into the 70s that started to die um, or diminished uh, in the in the 70s, late 70s, was reflected in electoral politics, but also uh, eventually in governance itself, that is public policy itself. And so um, do you think that these ideological um, origins, as it were, for some of these policies, have they been affected by the experiences of these generations? In other words, um, and we'll talk about what your predictions are and what your uh, suggestions for public policy are in, in a little bit, but do you think experience matters to people? Oh, I absolutely think that experience does matter to people. And, you know, the, it, it, it's, it, you know, it actually helps make my argument the way that you've uh, kind of defined some of the, the, you know, cutoffs in terms of when some of these political transitions started. So, I mean, remember that uh, the 80s, it, you know, we didn't get our first baby boomer president until January of uh, 1993 when Bill Clinton was sworn in. Uh, but boomers had become a large part of the American electorate starting in the 80s. And I think that a lot of um, 
you know, the policy and political debates that started swirling around in America in that era were partly a response to a lot of the frustration that this large cohort of boomer voters uh, were feeling as they were entering an economy in their 20s and 30s that felt a lot less secure uh, than what they had seen their parents enjoying when they grew up. Uh, And in fact, I think that you can absolutely look at some ways in which the boomers were clearly trying to learn lessons from their economic experiences through that era. So, I mean, one of the arguments I make in the book that, uh, you know, some people might find controversial is that a certain amount of, uh, you know, support for Reagan or the supply side revolution in the 80s was an early understanding by voters that, you know, that something was going wrong on the investment picture in the economy, that somehow businesses weren't quite as healthy as they had been before, uh, weren't investing as much as they should have done. And uh, there needed to be a policy response to that. And I think that you can certainly have a a big argument about whether the supply side revolution was the right uh, response to that. Uh, But I see it at least partly as an early attempt to answer some of these political pressures that were developing. And then certainly once you got into the uh, 90s and then the 2000s, when we have now starting in 93, every president we've had since then has been a baby boomer. Um, You've seen a policy environment or a general direction of travel politically that I think reflects a lot of these um, boomer economic insecurities that had started in the 70s and 80s. So, I mean, whether it was uh, the Clinton era emphasis on investment in computer technology as the thing that was going to drive productivity and wage growth, uh, you know, because boomers had been worried about where the growth of the future would come from for them, uh, you know, whether it was the Bush era emphasis on the housing market, which I think actually had its origins with concerns, you know, 10, 15 years earlier, uh, that maybe boomers were struggling to get onto the property ladder in the way that they had before. Um, you know, certainly boomers had grown up thinking about housing as a crucial part of adulthood and economic security. Um, it, you know, what I noticed is that as bruising as some of these Democratic versus Republican uh, political debates could be in that era, often the lane of travel for the policies that were actually implemented became surprisingly narrow. Uh, And a lot of it was oriented toward trying to address a lot of the concerns that the boomers had developed about the economy uh, when they were first emerging into it. So are those boomer responses, some of which you might agree with, many of which it seems that you disagree with, are those boomer responses um, key to uh, fighting the last war, as it were? or are they more ideologically rooted that are, yes, response to experience, but nevertheless guided quite firmly by ideology? Um, I actually think that there was an attempt at pragmatism to a lot of this. And again, you know, this was something that surprised me because remember that uh, as a millennial and an older millennial born in 82, uh, I started paying attention to politics uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s when we had the the bruising uh, impeachment fight over Bill Clinton and then the contested 2000 election. and all of the controversies surrounding George W. Bush's tenure. At the time, it felt like this was a very ideological uh, distinction between the two parties. One of the things that surprised me when I sat down to write the book and started looking at what these people had actually done when they were in office was how narrow that lane of travel had been in, in terms of policy outcomes and 
in a way, how pragmatic they were trying to be. I mean, the way I, I've been describing it is, is it was an attempt to harness the productive power of the market in service of the protective power of the state. I think that that was really what the boomers were trying to do. That was the origin of things like the new Democrats of the Clinton era or the compassionate conservatism of the uh, George W. Bush era. Um, it was this attempt to find a third way because people had realized that they did need a well-functioning market economy um, in order to deliver the economic growth and the prosperity, the investment, the productivity growth that uh, boomers had figured out that they needed. Uh, but they also still had inherited from their parents this notion that the, the government should play a big role uh, in guiding those things. So you would see a lot of policies like um, you know, investment incentives that were oriented toward particular industries at the expense of others. Um, you know, a lot of talk about particular activities such as investment in higher education, the four-year bachelor's degree is the path to success, uh, the expense, you know, expense of some possible policy alternatives that they could have taken on that score. Uh, a real emphasis on using the government to uh, really dramatically boost home ownership rates um, you know, through the efforts of, of groups like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Um, you know, I think that this was all an example of that relatively narrow lane of, of uh, traffic that at the time, I think people would have said that they were trying to be pragmatic instead of ideological. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And so this was a theme that emerged uh, for me as a reader, um, which is the theme being that statism really has never died as an approach to these national problems. And when I say statism, of course, what I mean is a broad national policy that attempt in one way or another to uh, tinker with the incentives that um, whether it's uh, narrow-minded ideology, not that ideology per se is narrow, but what I, what I mean is guided primarily by ideology or as you're describing um, a group of people who see themselves as pragmatically responding to problems that they've experienced. It seems to me, though, that ultimately the undergirding uh, assumption or presumption about how things should be responded to or planned for in the future is through government action. And so in many ways, even though liberalism uh, supposedly started to die in the late 70s, in many ways, the liberalism of the state and its activity has never gone away. Uh, yeah, I think that that's fair to say. And, uh, you know, as some uh, commentators have pointed out, this is really a, a habit of mind that the boomers inherited from their parents. Because, again, remember the 50s through the 70s was an era, I think, of uh, great faith in the power of government to uh, accomplish things. It was the era of the great society programs. Um, you know, a renewed emphasis on technocratic governance to try to guide the economy. I mean, the, now the boomers figured out, I think that that approach had uh, failed 
once they got to the 70s. In fact, I think that that was one of the big political uh, consequences of the uh, supply-side revolution of the 80s that people talk about, or of uh, you know, Ronald Reagan's approach to politics, was that he did persuade uh, boomers that they needed to be more open to uh, you know, the, the market uh, and the, the benefits of the, the market system uh, to solve some of these problems. But they also never quite lost their faith in the ability of government to guide that process uh, if government was run smarter. Uh, and you know, I think that this is an attitude that has created a lot of problems for millennials moving forward. I mean, first off, it contributed to some of the imbalances, especially in the housing market, uh, where I locate uh, you know the seeds of the financial crisis and the the Great Recession that followed after it. But I think that that kind of approach also didn't serve uh, the boomers or the millennials particularly well uh, once America was trying to claw its way out of the Great Recession because it meant that um, you know, people were using a relatively limited toolbox and there was a lot of doubling down on this kind of a- approach, whether it was in the form of actively trying to reflate the housing market uh, you know, as a pathway to economic revival and security after the recession, or whether it was uh, you know, doubling down on you know, various industrial strategies, such as the Obama-era favoritism for green energy investment uh, as a path out of the recession, um, you know, in ways that could become a very restricting view in ways that were not necessarily helpful for millennials. So um, let's talk about a few specific uh, public policies. You go over uh, an array of different areas of economic life. Um, I I wanted to address the role of, uh, in particular, the Federal Reserve and uh, money supply, interest rates, uh, the response to the financial crisis. What role do you see as the Federal Reserve playing um, that was important in terms of effects for uh, millennials? Well, again, this is a really important part of the story that I'm trying to get out with this book, because I feel like monetary policy is something that most people uh, don't pay a lot of attention to. I mean, I have total sympathy for people whose eyes glaze over when they see a news report about what the Federal Reserve is doing to interest rates or quantitative easing, whatever that is. Um, But millennials are going to have to understand this because it has huge implications uh, for the economy. Um, you know, a most immediate effect of that was housing. Uh, I think that you can really locate a lot of the blame for the housing mania and bubble that led to the uh, crash in 2007 and 2008. You know, a lot of that blame lies at the door of the Federal Reserve uh, because their interest rate policies were calibrated toward allowing that kind of boom uh, bubble to develop. Um yeah, you know, I think that after the the crisis, certainly you can point to a lot of interesting effects, the you know, negative side effects of Federal Reserve policy. I think that there's a lot of evidence, for example, that uh, keeping interest rates as low as they have been for as long as they have been low uh, affects different companies differently. It's been terrific for very large companies that are able to issue bonds very cheaply. Uh, It has been a very difficult environment for much smaller companies that rely on loans from uh, banks that, uh, you know, are struggling to maintain their profitability as they're making risky small business loans. And also the banks are facing a lot of post-crisis regulation uh, that limits their ability to do that. And, you know, millennials need to understand that there are generational consequences for that. Uh, Because you can point to a lot of evidence that uh, larger companies disproportionately hire older workers. Uh, Smaller companies tend to uh, hire younger, uh, less experienced workers. 
So, you know, one of the consequences of the attempt to use monetary policy to respond to the crisis, which again was a classic piece of equipment in the boomer economic toolbox uh, to ascribe so much uh, importance to monetary policy is that they accidentally ended up uh, favoring the companies that were less likely to hire millennials who were you know particularly struggling in the job market. Uh, while a lot of the companies where those millennial new workers would have expected to find work, uh, it took a long time for them to catch up and, and be able to find the resources that they could use to start expanding again. And so um, when I read about your description of the role of the Federal Reserve, what I'm reminded of is uh, the old Friedrich Hayek approach to understanding the limits of knowledge uh, that any one person holds uh, or can hold about how things work. Um, Hayek is famous uh, among economists and uh, sometimes among others uh, uh, that for essentially arguing um, that, you know, the human mind can only take in so much knowledge and can un- only understand so much about how things in fact work. And so even if you have a quote unquote pragmatic response, like uh, Ben Bernanke's response to uh, the immediate crisis um, in 2007 and eight, uh, nevertheless, there are ripple effects and you don't always know what's going to be beneficial versus harmful in any given context. Do you think that uh, I see that as a theme that emerges, even though it's not one you expressly identify, but to me, that kind of limits of knowledge problem, regardless of generation, um, is one that seems to be revealed by these different areas of the economy that you describe. Uh, No, I think that's definitely a fair reading of the book. I mean, this isn't a point that I uh, discuss explicitly, although I do think that it's lurking between a lot of the lines in the book. Uh, I mean, one fact of life for the boomers was that the American economy grew significantly more complicated over the course of their economic lifetime. Uh, So if you go back again and you look at the 50s and 60s, the era when the boomers were growing up, uh, when they were just uh, starting to observe their parents uh, in the economic world, the American economy was much simpler. I mean, it was still a very complicated, very vibrant uh, animal, but it was an era when America didn't face a lot of global competitive pressure uh, because uh, some of our biggest competitors, including Japan and West Germany, were uh, still offline rebuilding after the war. Um, It was an era when the economy had kind of focused itself into a form of industrial organization where you had a lot of large companies floating around that were relatively easy for people to understand. You could recognize all of the names. Uh, You knew what those companies did. and that has, you know, that already was starting to fade in the late '60s and early '70s, and the American economy was returning to a much more complicated state. I mean, people forget how unusual the '50s and '60s were in a lot of these ways. Um, I think that you know, part of the boomer problem has been to always think that have in the back of their mind this thought that you know, if we just try hard enough, it should be something that we'll be able to understand. Uh, and I'm not sure that's always the right. Approach. I think that uh, you know the, a certain recognition that the economy was inevitably becoming much more complex, uh, that it would become more immune to attempts to fine tune it through policy, probably would have been helpful uh, because a certain amount of humility might have discouraged some of the policy errors that I talk about in the book that have had such big consequences. So, 
one um, conclusion uh, that I have after reading your assessment of the boomers uh, versus the millennials is that the actions that the boomers took in, to put it crudely, the time they held power, meaning when they were the people hiring, they were the people forming public policy, is to suggest that they were responding pragmatically to problems that they saw emerging in the economy. Um, and they were doing what they thought, regardless of whether they were from the left or the right, uh, was in the best interests of the, uh, the country. Um, a more pejorative view, which is one you don't really seem to embrace, uh, and this is what I want you to comment upon, more pejorative view would be that the boomers really are not just de facto uh, agents of affecting uh, subsequent generations, but they're also uh, somewhat mendacious and somewhat selfish. Uh, so I, what do you think of the uh, more critical assessment of the boomers that these are people who intentionally uh, are borrowing and mortgaging their children's future rather than their own, and they are shifting the bill to future generations um, unjustly and unwarrantedly? What, what do you think of that critical view? Well, I think it uh, depends entirely on what policy area you're looking at. Now, I mean, first off, that is certainly a, a common reading that uh, your reasonable people can have. There was a, another book about, you know, specifically about the boomers that came out a couple of years ago, calling them uh, a generation of sociopaths right in the title of the book. Uh, I think that's taking it a little bit far, but I mean, it is important to point out here you know, I talked about how the boomers were really trying to grasp towards solutions to a lot of the problems that uh, they observed in the economy for themselves. I don't want to create the impression that I think that the solutions that they reached were the inevitable solutions that they would have come to. Um, I do actually think that, you know, because that would suggest that it's not fair to blame them for doing things that had unforeseen consequences. Uh, I mean, you look at a lot of these decisions, and there actually was a vigorous debate. Uh, about many of these areas. You can go back to the mid-2000s and look at a lot of debate about whether uh, we were pursuing the right kind of housing policies, whether there was a real danger of economic stability to economic stability in terms of trying to push the home ownership rate as high uh, as boomer politicians were trying to drive it. Um, there's been a lot of debate about you know, many of these monetary policy issues I talk about in the book. There has definitely been a lot of debate about uh, entitlement funding issues, which is another thing that I, I talk about in the book, which will become an increasingly urgent issue uh, as boomers retire and start collecting Social Security and Medicare benefits. Um, so, you know, they can't say that they weren't warned. It's just that when it came time to vote, the decisions that the boomers tended to make uh, you know, veered toward the results that we got. So I do think that there was definitely an element of choice about that. Now, in some of these areas, maybe that choice was more selfish than others. I think that the argument that the boomers have been uh, very selfish is strongest when you're talking about the entitlement situation, because that really is an area where it is very clear cut uh, that the benefits that they have kept voting for themselves and that they have kept refusing to reform uh, are going to place a stiff, if not impossible, fiscal burden on their children. Uh, you know, politicians of various stripes have been trying to make that argument for years. Uh, boomers, as a class of voters, have just have made a conscious decision to ignore those warnings. Um, you know, maybe the selfishness versus uh, well-intentioned mistake uh, 
issue becomes a little cloudier in some of these other points. Uh, but I think it definitely is fair to talk about the extent to which some of the choices the boomers made were inevitable uh, and whether they always had the best motivations when they made those decisions. Okay, so uh, let's shift then to the victim side, the millennials. Um, you start the book with a story about avocado toast, and I want you to talk about that. Uh, but uh, it leads to this larger question of how much or how much sympathy uh, should the reasonable reader feel for the millennials, um, and how much of a victim are they really? Uh, yes, their policy choices made uh, before the millennials came of age, um, but also millennials play their own roles in shaping their futures to a degree. So I want you to talk about how much of a victim they really are um, vis-a-vis avocado toast. Uh, right. I mean, the whole avocado toast uh, thing, uh, I think, perfectly captures this kind of uh, talking past each other phenomenon I mentioned. Uh, because, you know, the, the, the story I tell in the book, uh, back in 2017, there was an Australian property developer named Tim Gurner, who's actually an older millennial himself. This surprises people about this story. Uh, he got a, a bit of global media attention when he did a TV interview uh, where he suggested that one of the reasons that millennials aren't buying houses in the same uh, proportion that their boomer parents had uh, is because we're all spending so much money on avocado toast for brunch uh, that we have forgotten how to save for a down payment on a house. And, you know, again, it perfectly seemed to me to capture this divide between, uh, you know, boomers who look at what a comfortable today uh, millennials experience versus millennials who feel this great sense of long-term discomfort. Uh, and my message here is that the millennials actually are right in that debate. Um, I think that you can look at a whole range of measures, starting with the uh, job market, at the employment prospects of millennials who have graduated into the economy over the past 10 years. Uh, you know, Certainly, young people are always the most exposed to an economic downturn uh, because they are the, less, the, the least skilled, uh, least productive workers in the economy. Um, you know, a period of high unemployment puts them in competition with older, more experienced workers who have been laid off and might be forced down the career ladder a little bit just to make ends meet. Um, you know, millennials had all of those effects on steroids. I think that if you look at the employment data for millennials, it took a long time for us to uh, catch up uh, to where we otherwise would have been uh, as a cohort in terms of our employment prospects. Uh, there's a lot of research from previous much milder recessions that uh, suggests that the economic effects of that early setback are going to be with the millennial generation for 10, 15 years or more. Uh, it can take that much time to earn back the cumulative lifetime earnings that you lose uh, through an early period of unemployment or underemployment. Um, you, you know, I think that uh, one of the big causes of the student debt crisis that has developed for millennials uh, is the fact that the bad job market pushed a lot of people into school or back to school. Uh, one of the things I've noticed, especially as I've been talking uh, to more people about the book over the past couple of weeks, is just the sheer number of millennials you encounter who either themselves or you know they have a friend who went back to grad school uh, within the past decade because the job market didn't work out for them uh, as they had hoped that it would. And we were always encouraged to believe that that kind of, uh, you know, quote unquote investment in education would pay off for us. 
And yet then, you know, we make the investment and we're still graduating into a soft job market where the wage growth isn't there for us. Uh, and, you know, that produces a, what, a very urgent student debt crisis. Uh, the housing market hasn't worked out for us. We are way behind uh, baby boomers uh, in terms of the proportion of us who own our own homes at this point in our lives, uh, partly because we have been the job market has been pulling us into urban areas uh, where prices are high because uh, you know, supply is severely constrained. At the same time, the policymakers in Washington at the Fed and the Treasury have been consciously trying to prop up the housing market for 10 years. Uh, you know, millennials find ourselves getting priced out of the market. That potentially cuts us off from the economic security over the longer term that can come from home ownership. Uh, and, you know, of course, we also face a, a particularly urgent fiscal time bomb in the form of the old age entitlements, which is something that's going to be unprecedented. No previous generation has had to grapple uh, with how we are going to pay for that kind of bill if we'll be able to pay it. Uh, so I think that you can definitely look at a whole list of these measures, uh, these different areas of economic life, and point to examples where you know, previous generations might have had problems, but it has all blossomed in a new and particularly damaging way uh, for millennials just at the moment uh, when this uh, new large cohort of uh, millennials was entering the American economy. That list of different measures that you just described was also the subject to a degree uh, last week in an article in the Wall Street Journal, which is your employer, um, about millennials. Uh, I believe it was based, if I recall correctly, on a Federal Reserve port report. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, did did that new, which is obviously a report that's been issued since you uh, went to press with this book, did that change or just uh, simply reinforce uh, your uh, assessment of the millennials' prospects? I think it reinforces it. Uh, I, I have to say, as an author, uh, you know, any other authors listening to this podcast will completely sympathize. So when you're writing the book, uh, you worry a lot about whether it is future proof, uh, because you do worry that things will emerge after you've uh, sent it off to the printer uh, that will sort of change your, your view or undermine your argument in some way. But my experience with this book has been completely the opposite. Uh, I think that each new piece of data about the millennial generation that emerges uh, really suggests that it is a generation in economic crisis. Uh, and this is it's important to note that this is still the case two years into a new economic boom. Uh, you know, one of the responses I've gotten to the book uh, is from people who say, well, yeah, I mean, it might have been bad for you guys in the immediate aftermath of the Great Recession. Uh, but the economy has started booming again. Unemployment is at 50-year lows, both for the population overall and for young people. Uh, wage growth is up. Productivity and investment are picking up. So what are you guys complaining about? Uh, but you know that doesn't change the fact that uh, millennials are going to be making up that first eight years, uh, you know, potentially for decades to come. Um, and even on things like the uptick in investment and productivity that we're starting to see uh, you know, over the past couple of years, that is happening from a baseline that is much lower than where the baseline was even in the 70s or 80s. Uh, so even if you have like a 3 or 4% productivity gain now, um, you're starting from a much lower baseline, and that has implications uh, for the kind of for the way that millennials are going to experience this boom, for how boomy it is going to feel to us. Um, 
So I think that then that filters through to the sort of Federal Reserve data that was in the, the journal article that you're looking at, uh, you know, sign, signs of financial distress, such as the availability or attainability of homeownership, uh, you know, concerns about the student debt burden on household finances. Um, I mean, millennials are still a generation in crisis, and I think it's important for uh, boomers to understand that uh, because there are going to be some political consequences for that moving forward. So near the end of the book, you uh, provide what is essentially a list of don'ts and um, certain public policies that the U.S. should not pursue. And you do this through the mechanism of looking at or comparing the U.S. experience to the policy responses uh, given in the European Union and to a degree in Japan. Uh, can you expand upon what that list of don'ts is? Yeah, this was something I found so fascinating uh, writing the book, and I think it was a unique vantage point I had writing this kind of book about the American economy from here in London where I'm based, because you do get that uh, outside perspective, and you also get some perspective on uh, what people are doing about these problems in the rest of the world. And the thing that is astonishing, I realized, is that if you look at uh, developed countries, at least certainly uh, emerging economies have a very different set of generational challenges. But if you look just at uh, the developed economies of the world, uh, you will discover a wide uh, variety of uh, political systems. You will discover a wide variety of configurations for their social welfare spending and programs. Uh, you'll find a wide variety of tax policies. Uh, you'll find a wide variety of cultural backgrounds. The one thing that no one seems to have figured out is how to manage some of these generational fairness issues that are uh, starting to emerge. Uh, so, you know, here in London, uh, they are in the midst of a housing crisis that is more acute even than the housing crisis that uh, American millennials face. And it is because you have an extreme version of a phenomenon where the job market is pulling millennials into uh, thriving urban areas, especially London itself, um, where the supply is so constrained. And you can see here an example of the kind of problems that will develop over the longer term of uh, policymakers can't come up with some solution to some of these supply problems in the U.S., uh, you know, in Germany, you see that the Germans are very proud of the fact that they balance their budget every year. They call it the Schwarze Null or the, the Black Zero. It's a point of political pride that they don't have any annual deficit spending. And yet, as their population continues to age, that is going to radically reverse because no matter how high your taxes are today, uh, they're still, they still haven't found a way to make their old age entitlement programs affordable as more Germans start retiring. Um, you know, you can, you can go down the, the, you know, I talk a bit about how in the European Union as a whole, um, they have never really figured out a way to create, uh, economic stability for young people. Instead, often you see that, uh, young people in the European labor market become the shock absorbers whenever there's a downturn, um, you know, because attempts to try to protect workers, such as uh, much stronger legal protections for unions than uh, we have in America, uh, much higher minimum wages relative to the median wage level in an economy, uh, all of that actually tends to price younger people out of the job market entirely. Um, 
So, I mean, it really is something that Americans are going to need to reflect on, and American millennials are going to have to think about this as we start voting in larger and larger numbers, uh, getting elected to Congress, the Senate, eventually the White House, making more of these policy decisions ourselves. Uh, I think that there are real lessons to learn looking around at some of these other mistakes that uh, other countries already are making. Of course, if you, uh, what I did was uh, I, I went back and I just made a short list of the different public policies that you uh, point to in Europe, uh, in particular the UK and Germany, uh, to a degree in Japan. And uh, it's regarding the minimum wage, union protectionism, uh, increasing taxes but not changing benefits, zoning restrictions on housing, subsidizing housing, etc. These are all policies that are embraced by the left um, in the U.S. in particular. And so one of the um, trends in recent uh, public discussion about millennials and I guess Generation Z people as well is uh, an embrace of statism, whether it's called socialism, and that may be an amorphous term, but never, and we don't have to get into the debate about what is socialism, but rather um, my point is that it seems that uh, millennials and uh, younger people, uh, younger than millennials, have no real fear of statism um, and that they may in some senses even run to it as a uh, solution for the problems that are emerging for them. So it's hard to predict the future, I know, um, but what do you think about how statism is going to be handled in the coming years on a national scale in the U.S.? Well, I, the, the big picture view that I take of this is, I mean, remember I spoke a few minutes ago about how one of the things that was most striking about the boomers uh, during their uh, years of political ascendancy was the fact that they settled into a surprisingly narrow lane in terms of the public policies that they were uh, pursuing. And this was true whether it was a Democratic administration or a Republican administration. I mean, even something that seemed very radical at the time, like the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, uh, was actually just a doubling down uh, in a very aggressive way on this boomer era model. In fact, from the boomer's childhood, where the employer would be responsible for providing a health insurance benefit. Uh, So the state would direct the, the market to do something like that. Well, I mean, my take on what's happening politically with the millennials is that we are intuiting that that narrow lane has not worked, that it created a lot of uh, economic instability, that it hasn't really given a satisfactory solution for what to do once we got into the uh, Great Recession and the slow growth aftermath to that. We want out of that lane. Now, you think politically about then uh, how various politicians are responding to that, and I think that the most enthusiastic response to that desire for change right now seems to be coming from the left. It's coming from the Bernie Sanders, the Elizabeth Warrens of the world. It's being picked up by millennial politicians like the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes of the world. Um, And, you know, there is, you know, the one thing that you can say about uh, that kind of policy framework is that it is very much outside of the narrow lane. It has just uh, shifted out of that narrow lane by veering to the left in a more more state, less market direction. Uh, but I actually don't think that it's obvious that millennials will uh, you know, necessarily follow that path in the end as long as we benefit from a sufficiently competitive 
political and policy landscape because, I mean, certainly the, the headline polls suggest a certain amount of millennial skepticism of capitalism and support for socialism. Uh, but people like uh, you know, Harvard's Ed Glazer and the spring issue of the City Journal magazine uh, have looked at you know, a bunch of other more nuanced survey data about millennials' attitudes toward business or entrepreneurship uh, or their own economic prospects or specific things that the government might do. And it's actually a much more confused picture. I mean, what I take from that is that uh, we millennials are know we want out of the narrow boomer policy lane, but we are not yet entirely persuaded uh, whether we want to go in the more state or the more market direction. Uh, I think that it's just that right now you don't have a lot of politicians that are necessarily arguing in the more market direction. I mean, one of the things that's uh, surprising about President Trump for all of his political flamboyance, uh, he is still a boomer through and through. If you look at issues like trade policy or the resolute refusal to address uh, the old age entitlements or reform them, uh, he perfectly reflects the political preoccupations uh, you know, that have dominated most of the boomers' political careers. Um, you know, millennials, I think, are looking for a different kind of big change. Uh, so really the question in the coming years is going to be which side is going to be most persuasive in offering us one. So uh, is there then, on your part, much optimism in regard to future changes in public policy? Because it seems that with if you take a look at Republican voters, the demographic trend is that uh, older voters um, dominate the Republican Party. Um, they may be, quote unquote, self-serving in regard to their policy preferences uh, regarding the entitlement state. Um but on the other hand, the younger voters that emerge uh, as faithful to the Democrats are also in favor of the entitlement state. They just want a bigger one. Um, does that create a great deal of optimism for you uh, regarding what you obviously prefer, which is more market-oriented policy approaches? Uh, I am uh, cautiously optimistic because I think that you have to be careful if you're looking at uh, things like millennial political attitudes. Uh, you certainly, and this I think is also a consequence just of social media like Twitter um, or the current media preoccupation with political millennials in general. Uh, I think that a lot of the attention is, gradu- is uh, gravitating to the people who are right on the edges where they are most flamboyant. Um, But again, if you look at uh, a lot of the survey data, if you look at how millennials actually vote, uh, I mean, it is not true that millennials are lockstep with the Democratic Party. Uh, In fact, there's some evidence that although millennials do uh, trend much more leftward on a lot of social issues, I mean, millennials tend to view uh, the culture war, you know, issues surrounding marriage, family life, or even uh, racial or ethnic diversity or immigration is settled issues in a way where the boomers might still be debating a lot of those things. Uh, I mean, certainly on the economics, you can see, um, you know, during the 2016 election, it was absolutely fascinating that a lot of millennials actually were not prepared to vote for uh, Hillary Clinton, even though she was the Democratic nominee. I think that millennials are much more interested in the policy solutions, the freshness of the voice than they are in party loyalty. Uh, And that actually creates some openings on both sides. And I mean, I I, I will say uh, I've had the opportunity since the book came out to talk to people on both the left and uh, the right and, you know, people of both the boomer and the millennial generations on both sides of the traditional political divide. 
And you see all sorts of interesting attitudes happening among younger conservatives who are really interested in engaging with these issues, who understand the economic uh, problems that they uh, suffer along with members of their own generation, who think that there are ways that you can uh, address those problems by appealing more to a free market approach and who are eager to get out there and make that case. Um, I think we just need to see over the next few years how effectively they're able to do that. But I have some hope uh, that millennial voters will be open to that kind of competition, that we actually want to feel like there are competing points of view, that we can pit the left against the right on some of these issues and really make our own decisions uh, about which side we're going to end up trusting more. Well, we'll end on that optimistic note. The book is entitled The Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. And we've been joined today by the author, Joseph C. Sternberg. Joe, thank you so much for joining us on New Books Network. Well, thank you for having me. It was great to talk about the book with you.